Welcome to episode 11, The Art of Wound Care, Blending the Science and Compassion. This is the Wound Masterclass podcast and on today's episode we're joined by Terry Swanson and Georgina Gethin who are two stalwarts of the wound care industry. They're experts based in Ireland and Australia and we're going to tackle this combination of bringing science, compassion and individualised care. Terry's going to take a deep dive with us into the principles of biofilm management and discovering the core principles that guide the effective biofilm identification, encompassing that initial assessment, selection techniques and strategies for management. We're going to learn about how to provide optimal care at every stage, and also the indications for the use of surfactants. Together with Terry and Georgina, we're going to talk to you about combination strategy of using a proactive approach and products for prevention of biofilm as part of that wound bed preparation process. Then Terry's going to take us into algorithms for treatment and gaining insight into evidence-based algorithms for wound bed preparation, addressing the different types of wounds and their factors. And together, all three of us are going to discuss how to apply these algorithms effectively to ensure that your patients have streamlined and efficient patient care. Thanks very much for joining us for episode 10 of this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion uh, on wound assessment, patient-centered approach, and how to effectively prepare for optimization of the wound bed. Please join us for episode 11, coming shortly. Uh, Terry, we're delighted to have you joining us for this section on wound bed preparation. We're going to kind of hone in on your clinical experience over these these many years that you've been involved with evidence-based practice. And so we'd love to hear a bit more about your practice um, currently. Thank you. Uh, I work in an outpatient clinic uh, in a small hospital. We're only 200 beds here in Warrnambool, Victoria. I am a nurse practitioner. Uh, we see all sorts of wounds. So we do inpatient consultations as well. So post-surgical delayed healing. And we have patients who come in with pressure injuries. Uh, I work a lot with the diabetic foot uh, with podiatry. Um, we don't have vascular in our hospital. So they go off for intervention elsewhere. I've been doing wound management since 1990 and still have the passion and the joy for it. So today I'm going to talk to you about wound bed preparation. I've, I've provided you with my disclosure. So the learning objectives today are basically the principles of biofilm management, understanding the, the characteristics or the phenotype and how that may impact on wound healing. Then I'll go into some of the evidence and recommendations for treatment. Uh, and I'll be focusing on two main documents, the International Wound Infection Institute consensus documents and wound hygiene. And then I'll conclude with value-based healthcare, understanding that it's more than the unit cost. So the principles of biofilm management. So the, the characteristics or the phenotype. So the planktonic is not the normal state um, for bacteria. And it's planktonic when it's considered non-attached or free-floating, and it's replicating. Therefore, if it goes into uh, great density or virulence, then it becomes what they call an acute infection. And antibiotics are effective for planktonic because they are replicating. Biofilm, however, are when they attach, and they can attach either to themselves, to the dressing, go um, below the wound surface. Once they become attached, they can group, and that's called aggregation. 
when they aggregate, um, they can then develop communication, which they call quorum sensing. When they start to mature, they become more tolerant to most antimicrobial agents. And the host defenses are reduced, they have reduced efficacy because of the protection of the extracellular matrix, because the center of a mature biofilm may be slightly hypoxic, and certainly the meiotic activity, the replicating has decreased. Therefore, antibiotics are not as effective. Because the body recognizes that the biofilm is there, it promotes a chronic inflammation. And studies have shown that it can be over a thousand times more tolerant to antibiotics. Biofilms do have primitive circulatory systems that facilitate the uptake of nutrients. And these nutrients can be from the wound fluid, it can be from edema. And that's why moisture management is so important. And then you have the removal of those metabolic products. And so you see an increase of exudate with, uh, when you have biofilm. And then we also know that it can be gene transfer of the microbes within that, and it can be polymicrobial. The human microbiome is a, a complex system. And we know that sometimes the, the bacteria and that microbiome work together to reduce uh, pathogenic bacteria. So not all bacteria, not all biofilm are necessarily bad, it's when it becomes pathogenic. And so it's that hyperinflammation caused by the pathogenic uh, biofilm in a wound that establishes a chronic and recalcitrant wound healing process. So there is an imbalance where now you have too many of um, the, the negative components of wound healing in levels that are not conducive to wound healing and those destructive enzymes and toxics can actually decrease the, the wound uh, condition. It takes the wound from being a host-centric, so controlled by the body's physiological processes, to now controlled more by the bacteria or bacteria-centric. This imbalance decreases the um, receptors for the growth factors, or in fact, decreases the amount of growth factors. As I said, those destructive lytic enzymes and free radicals affect the cell proliferation as well as the wound healing capabilities. This uh, nutrient-rich exudate uh, from persistent inflammation assists in the bacterial cause. It makes that environment more hostile um, and it affects immune recognition and the healing process. So it's a cascade in the wrong direction. And can I ask you, Terry, what's, what's the global view on using the term biofilm um, in terms of its popularity over time uh, in your experience? We, we have definitions um, agreed uh, consensus-wise about what a biofilm it usually talks about an aggregate and, and these components that I've talked about in the last two slides. So biofilm in itself isn't, isn't a bad word. It, it reflects the phenotype of the bacteria or microbes. What is a uh, concern, I think, in the, the biofilm expert community is the fact that a lot of our information is known from the labor laboratory. And we've kind of generalized that information out into the, the actual chronic wound environment. And we really don't know fully how much the laboratory environment matches the, the wound environment out uh, with the, our patients. It's an emerging science. We are learning more. Um, and 
you know, and Kosterton worked back in the 1990s uh, to Thomas Barnhold, Stephen Percival, Matt Malone, Randy Wolcott, and Garth James, all are experts. And we still are know that we have a long way to go to fully understand how it, it works in the wound environment versus the laboratory. And we have all these mental models about what we think, you know, the mushrooms don't actually grow out in the wound itself. Um, people are trying to equate a surface substance or slime slough that equates with biofilm. And again, that's sort of a myth about biofilm because you can, Matt Malone has great photos of pristine, healthy looking wounds, but they're not healing. Um, and when they've done biopsies, there's significant biofilm within that. So some wounds may have surface substance, but some may not. It's more due to the fact that when it's a healable wound and not healing, that we suspect that biofilm. But remember that it's not just the biofilm. You have the three components that Georgina has talked about, and that's the wound and the environment of which um, that patient resides uh, and the service provision they have. Um, and then the host is always a definitive factor. You know, the risk factors, the comorbidities they have play a key part uh, in what can or cannot happen. So I was fortunate to be part of this biofilm consensus group. So it's a global panel and we first met in 2015. I've listened to my esteemed colleagues here but what we did through a Delphi process was come up with a consensus, one on a definition, but you know, this is 217 times of advance from there. But what we came up with was these signs and symptoms, and there was some level of agreement on there. These are currently being debated um, uh, by the same uh, scientists, but this is what we have so far, and this is what we tend to work from is the failure of appropriate antibiotic treatment um, so that you antibiotics don't work on replicating uh, uh, non-replicating bacteria. Biofilm decreases that meiotic activity that recalcitrates into appropriate antimicrobial treatment for the reasons that I've just talked about. These patients uh, with uh, local infection or biofilm infection that um, they tend to be on this sort of 10 week cycle that once you stop the antibiotic treatment, those symptoms uh, quickly come back. When you have a healable wound and you have delayed healing despite optimal treatment. So you've got the diagnosis, you're targeting therapy and they still don't continue to heal. Um, you have this increased exudate and, and moisture. And so when you're doing your weekly assessments, when you start to see that increasing exudate, that may be a red flag. We know uh, that there's this low level chronic inflammation, this low level redness and erythema. Um, and sometimes patients are unfortunately prescribed antibiotics for this when it's inflammation, not infection. What we do have consistency is that with granulation tissue, it's not necessarily healthy. So you can, it may be frile, friable, so it bleeds easily, or you have your hypergranulation where it's raised, either that poor granulation is significant or a sign of um, a high density of bacteria in that wound, a heavy bile burden. And then the secondary signs of infection are fairly aligned with what I'm talking about now. Um, and those secondary signs were first published in 1994 by Keith Cutting and Keith Harding. 
So this is a um, an updated version of the biofilm-based wound care. And it again, it continues to have those consistent uh, um, instructions for the disruption of the biofilm, the prevention of recolonization and monitoring. What um, what I might say with, with this schemata is that, yes, I agree with failing to heal uh, as expected, uh, the signs of persistent inflammation. The presence or slough or necrosis may not be relevant to biofilm in itself. It may be to, um, especially necrosis level of uh, circulation and slough may be also moisture balance. Ineffective topical, topical treatments that I just talked about and the slime on the wound bed I don't necessarily subscribe to because as I said with Matt Malone, the pristine wound. Um, but I thought it was nice to see that it updated in 2023. But I go on now to talking about evidence-based practice and treatment recommendations. So there is some consistency uh, amongst uh, the management of biofilm. And you know we've had wound bed preparation uh, since the 1990s. Uh, we had time that was first published in the early 2000. Um, and there's been many iterations of time since then. Uh, the most popular being timers, talking about uh, regenerative medicine, uh, that was Adkins, biofilm-based wound care with Randy Walcott in 2010, the step-down, step-up paradigm that we published with the biofilm expert panel 2017, the wound hygiene that was published with the four-step program um, was published in 2019 and 2020, and the moist um, that is very popular in Europe uh, came from Germany. And this talks more about topical oxygenation and supporting of the host. What they all have in common is that we need to know the etiology. Georgina did a brilliant job in providing that foundation importance of that. We need to provide, once we know that etiology, the standard of care for that etiology. Then we need to do the wound and the peri-wound cleansing the debridement not only of the wound, but the edges and the peri-wound is required. And once the wound is pre prepared, then we provide proactive management to prevent that microbial attachment. So I've just picked a few guides for you. There's pathways, guides, guidelines, and best practice. So the top two are industry-related uh, documents for the clinician. So you know, the company's providing really good information um, and they put a lot of time and effort to get clinicians to author these. So have a look um, at the, the products that you're using and go to the company's websites to get those information. The bottom two are organizations, one being the International Wound Infection Institute and the other is the International Working Party Diabetic Foot Guidelines, which are updated every four years and just released this year as well. So the reason that these are so good is because they're synthesis of the latest research and evidence. So it, they do the homework for you. It is patient-centered. And when they're adapted locally, it provides cultural sensitivity and awareness. These are reviewed and authored by clinicians for clinicians. And most of them are free or they have a low fee to increase that accessibility. And many are translated into different languages. So um, good quality um, guidelines for you. Um, most often free to download. And we actually, yes, Terry, we've actually included these in the handouts in the virtual booth. So for all our global viewers, you can actually download sort of best practice and the guidelines. So if you just go to handouts and we'll share that in the chat right now. Fantastic, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. It's really helpful to kind of 
um, start with an evidence-based practice because sometimes there's such disparity globally in how people are actually managing wound bed cleansing, wound bed debridement, and there's just such a kind of varied practice throughout the world. So I feel like these documents uh, in terms of best practice and guidelines actually give the framework for people to be able to apply um, to their own clinical practice as well. And also to teach from, also we use these documents for updating our policies and procedures. Um, and when you have the latest evidence, you know, the accreditors, when they come through, they're very pleased to see that you have updated references. Fantastic. So in uh, 216, the International Wound Infection Institute um, coined uh, the term wound hygiene, but we didn't go on to elaborate about what that meant. Um, so fortunately, it talked about wound hygiene, and this group, not only uh, they came to a consensus about what that entailed, and so I commend this document to you, but it's about um, an antibiofilm strategy, and it provides you guidance um, about what to look for, how to do it, and as the wound continues to heal, the intensity of those interventions, and I go through that a little bit more through the, the presentation. So the outline for the wound hygiene has the four steps, but in the consensus document, we have a forward from our chair, Christine Murphy. We have the rationale for wound hygiene and the burden that wounds um, have on the world, the billions that are spent, and not only a, a cost to um, health services, but the cost emotionally and to the well-being of the patient. But the four steps are to cleanse the wound and the peri-wound, to debride, to refashion the wound edges, um, and that may be slightly different for people who, who never heard that term before, but the wound edges are so important and then dressing the wound and then some strategies of how to implement wound hygiene into your services and then a summary of the consensus statements. But the, the wound hygiene concept has continued to evolve. So like wound bed preparation, it just started with the wound itself. And then in the 2021 document, we talked about the wound healing framework. So going uh, with the concept of, of assessing is so important. So we need to have those etiology, managing the wound, and that's where the wound hygiene four steps come into, and then monitoring to make sure that that cycle of healing continues. What was interesting about this uh, framework is that the biofilm is present throughout the, all the phases of healing. And that's um, in line with current concept is that it's just when it, the pathogenesis occurs. So we know that bacteria wounds with bacteria will go on to heal. It's just when it's in balance and the host defenses can manage that. So the International Wound Infection Institute, so this was our first publication in 2008 and Biofilm only had, um, I think two, two sentences in regards to, uh, so this is our wound infection continuums. See that, um, we have contamination colonized, local, spreading, and systemic. We have an asterisk that localized because at that time in 2008, a lot of people were still using the words critical colonization. What we know is that at this point, um, something changed that tipped over into um, where they were symptomatic. And this is where our intervention is required. We had the arrow showing that increasing clinical problems uh, aligned with increasing microbial density. This was only 19 pages um, and we uh, translated to multi-languages. In 2016, we uh, updated this um, 
wound infection continuum. We did this uh, through rigorous methodology of a Delphi process. Again, agree, agreeing on the terminology about increasing microbial virulence. Uh, and we added biofilm. Now you would think this little arrow wouldn't take much to put in there, but it really took, uh, I think, almost four rounds to find some consistency where we were going to put the biofilm. We continued with our intervention strategy starting at local and reserving topical antimicrobials for when there is a local infection. We completely uh, removed the term critical colonization and we provided the rationale in, in that document. And then saving systemic antibiotics uh, for the spreading infection so that we have good uh, stewardship of, of our antiseptics as well as our antimicrobials. And then we were fortunate for our document in 2022, again, through rigorous methodology, we updated our uh, wound infection continuum. The clinicians wanted the signs and symptoms below our terminology, so we've added that. And the whole um, A1 uh, a, a document about not only the continuum, but the management plan can be found in the document. Again, we have local and overt again, um, providing um, when intervention is required. And this is based on our current understanding of biofilm and wound infection in itself. And the next slides, I go through them individually uh, with local and spreading. So with local, again, we have in 2016, we divided them from covert and overt. Covert is more aligned with the um, biofilm and the secondary signs of infection. So that delayed healing, increased wound size, that unhealthy granulation tissue I talked about, and increased exudate. The overt are your classic signs um, of uh, increased pain, edema, and you may have some purulent exudate. What's also important is it's still contained within the wound bed. So that two centimeters is important that it's contained within that. Uh, and the treatment is proactive. So it's therapeutic cleansing and consideration of topical antimicrobials. Then we go on to spreading infection. So this is where the, there's invasion of the surrounding and deeper tissue by the infective organisms. And so the erythema is now greater than two centimeters. You can see in the pictorials that I've provided that it's certainly going beyond two centimeters and you have cellulitis. You have a toe that is cyanotic Psygnotic due to the uh, decreased perfusion from the edema and from the microbes being in there. Um, so treatment here is not only the therapeutic cleansing and topical antimicrobials, but now is the time that you need systemic antibiotics. And given this, that patient has uh, peripheral arterial disease, there are matrices, uh, whether you go syst uh, with the systemic, whether it's oral or IV, this patient, in fact, had uh, um, systemic and um, um, went on for IV antibiotics. So what we want to do with our treatment is to try to prevent them going on to systemic. But I just give a word of caution here. So um, many times people will put up close-ups of uh, photos and say, is this wound infected? But you actually need to step back and look at this. And so this is actually inflammation. So you can see it's in a square. An infection doesn't do a square. So this is either contact from the dressing and a reaction, or it's the wound fluid that is now interacting with the skin in a negative way. So you have that contact dermatitis. So when you're looking at infection versus inflammation, think about what are the causative agents of that as well. 
So I have been lecturing and campaigning about wound cleansing for decades. And my mantra has always been stop anointing wounds. You know, people just kind of, um, they teach still in the, in the grad, you know, about this sort of um, in one hand and doing this. And, and that really doesn't do anything. And Dot Weir and I have bonded over this concept. And so she always says, clean it like you mean it. And this pictorial is just showing you that in one clinical setting, that you can remove that non-viable tissue and clean this up so that your dressings are actually going to contact the wound surface and therefore be more effective. And Randy Wall talks, talks about this therapeutic window of opportunity once you disrupt the, the biofilm and that microenvironment that your dressings are more effective. There, yeah, completely with you on this one, Terry. There's nothing worse than watching someone <laughs> do a, a wound cleanse and it's like, oh, it's like one of those really frustrating experiences if it's done in the way that you've described, which is just anointing and just kind of figuratively cleansing the wound, but not doing it properly so that, you know, obviously can make a difference and, and turn that corner for a wound healing, essentially. Yeah. And so we, we've been so passionate. We, we actually authored this in 2019. And so it's just a easy uh, read article about the top, top 10 tips. And so what do you, you know, cleanse with? Well, that depends on what you have available. And it's also the type of wound. So if it's healing versus infected, and if it's infected, then we suggest ant antiseptics because that's what they're designed for. When do you clean with each dressing change? So anywhere there's been a dressing, you need to cleanse that area. Where there's been a bandage, you need to cleanse that area. So about 20 centimeters from the wound edges is where we suggest. And the reason is that you don't want to allow the microbes that are on that peri-wound surface to keep coming back and contaminating the wound. And the intensity depends on the healing phases and conditions. And when we talk about the wound hygiene document, it, it talks about the intensity of how to do that as well. So the reason that we take the time to do wound cleansing are, are these items here, is that we know through evidence that with appropriate therapeutic cleansing, that we can decrease our antibiotic prescribing, that we can alter that wound environment and we disrupt the biofilm. Therefore, it improves the efficacy of our topical treatments. And if we do this rigorously in the early phases of that wounding, that we could hopefully decrease the escalation from a local infection, prevent it from going from a spreading infection. And if we can do that through our, our management strategies, doing a wound dressing procedure, then we have an opportunity to not only save a limb, but a life. It really is that important. So for those of you who are still doing therapeutic irrigation, remember that it, it, you have to have that therapeutic pounds per square inch. And the literature suggests that's four to 15 PSI pounds per square inch. If you have loose or necrotic tissue, dirty wound, you need the higher PSI, or if it's now on a healing trajectory and clean, then you can lower that PSI. Remembering that if you are doing irrigation that you need to have the personal protection. And how do you feel about pulse lavage, Terry, in terms of sort of those really necrotic wounds or kind of trauma situations um, where you have a lot of heavy contamination? It's certainly very common in the ED department, certainly in the operating theater, not so much in the clinics or in the wards. And so most of the dressing procedures are certainly done in those non-specialty areas. 
but certainly um, there is evidence for the pulsatile lavage because it has those therapeutic levels. Some of them have um, greater PSI, so you have to, um, but when you're talking about a traumatic injury, such as a motor vehicle accident, you need that for, for that and for other reasons as well. So there's lots of options for cleaning the peri wound in the skin. So in my facility, we use a lot of um, potable water and, and washcloths for that, uh, for cleaning the peri wound. Um, you have um, the uh, commercial wipes um, and our podiatry uh, department uses them a lot because it's a smaller body surface area. You can have um, uh, glove fingers, you can have forceps for scraping off that hy hyperkeratotic tissue. In the UK, they use a lot of sponges. Um, and then the synergistic effect of using a cleaning agent uh, to, to use with these just makes the job easier. So the solutions um, for wound cleansing are, are many. So this is our table nine from the International Wound Infection Institute, where we give you the, the cleansing solution, the fluid type, the safety profile, and any comments regarding that. Let's have a look at how a surfactant works. A surfactant molecule basically consists of a hydrophilic, water-attracting head and a water-repelling, hydrophobic tail. Since the tail doesn't like water, it searches for another place to go, which here is our biofilm. The polar heads of the surfactant molecules have the same electric load, and therefore they repel each other. This is how the biofilm breaks up. Several of these surfactant molecules bind to the biofilm and build micelles, which can then be removed from the wound bed much more easily. In this way, betaine has in essence opened the door for the supportive effect of polyhexanide in Prontosan, which can now act against the bacteria. Polyhexanide, or PHMB, is used as a disinfectant, or antiseptic. It is able to attack and destroy various types of microorganisms. Gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria are protected by a cell wall, whereas human cells are surrounded by a cell membrane. These bacteria can cause serious diseases and are resistant to antibiotics and antiseptics. A bacterial cell wall has a negative charge, while the PHMB molecule has several positive charges, which makes PHMB act like a magnet, attaching itself to different areas of the cell, starting with the negatively charged outer cell wall. PHMB binds itself to the cell wall through electrostatic interaction. The cell wall breaks open and begins to leak where the PHMB molecules attack. This results in the cytoplasm exiting the cell, which quickly causes the bacteria to die. PHMB attacks, breaks down, and destroys bacteria. Due to its positive charge, it also supports the barrier effect on the wound, as it helps prevent bacterial cells from adhering to the wound surface. No bacteria, no pathogenic biofilm. Uh, the wound hygiene document also provides you with those documents. So there are evidence to help guide you what um, you need for your facility. 
So just a little tip for practice. You can see that this is a very dry, scaly leg. This, folks, this is not what we want to see when a patient comes. Uh, many times when you unwrap that with they have compression, the leg may have dried out. So while you're putting a soak, so you open a, a gauze pack, you, you pour in your solution, you put it on the wound. Um, so it's doing that soak time because it has to have that contact time. Then what I do is I put uh, my pH skin cleanser uh, on my gloved hands and then I massage this in and patients just find this so soothing. And then it helps soften this dry scaly skin. And then um, I use my bowl of water and my face washers to um, cleanse the wound. But remembering, don't contaminate your water. So anytime that the cloth has been on that patient, that doesn't go back in the water. You keep using uh, multiple cloths um, to cleanse this until you finally have a cleansing. Um, and they, patients can shower, and I go through this a little bit further in, in the lecture, um, but what we ask is they bag the limb first so the contaminants and the microbes from the upper body don't contaminate the wound. Uh, and then we cleanse the wound. And this is based on a risk matrix that I go through as well. But those are just some of the tips for practice. Now, this document is from 2015, but I really love this document because it talks about prevention. So preventing that, that dry leg happening um, and then the treatment for that and then maintenance of that. So not only do we have to provide that wound cleansing and, and improvement, but we also have to have that limb skin health as well. And so this document provides you with easy strategies for cleansing, emollients, uh, to provide that skin health, which is so imperative because that hyperkeratosis, um, it just is a great breeding ground for microbes. And we're trying to reduce that and prevent infection. So I'm gonna ask you, um, are you rinsing, cleaning or scrubbing your wounds? So rinsing, there's a reason that we just don't rinse our dishes and then eat off them. There's a reason that we just don't rinse our hair or rinse our mouth uh, for good oral hygiene. We actually need to clean uh, our dishes for good hygiene. We need to actually clean our hands for good hand hygiene. And we need to clean our wounds when we have a local infection. If they have um, an infection, um, many times we need to actually scrub the wounds. And in order to do that, we need the synergistic effect of an agent and a mechanical device. And I'll go through some one of those options are. So we know that sterile water and normal saline have limited ability to manage those microbes. But if that's all you have, then make that up with the aggressive mechanical action that you're using. Antiseptic solutions assist in cleaning. Uh, more, it makes it more effective because they're designed to kill and disrupt the bacteria in the wound. Surfactants just make the job easier because it breaks that surface tension and it makes removing that debris more effective. The mechanical aids assist that. So we know that, that gauze is okay, but you have to keep using multiple gauze because of that cross-contamination. The mechanical aids, the debridement pads, retain those microbes. Um, and so it's just more efficient. Um, also, the evidence suggests it's less painful. Therapeutic cleansing is the rigorous cleansing of the wounds and periwood to remove the excess exudate, the debris, non-viable tissue, and remnant dressing. And there's so many times that I see patients with remnant dressings in the wound. So thorough cleansing has to remove all that. 
as Georgina talked about, sometimes it's hard to differentiate the wound edges. And so by cleansing therapeutic, cleansing those wound edges, it improves the assessment capability. And uh, we also disrupt and remove the microorganisms, achieving our goal of preparing the wound for the dressing. And do you feel, Terry, that that identification of biofilm all those years ago has made people think differently about how they would cleanse a wound? Because now, obviously, they've got this tangible um, layer called a biofilm layer that now they're having to address the way that they were previously dealing with wound cleansing and wound bed prep. Now that's brought an additional layer of kind of thought into that process. It has. Um I've been around long enough that you see the wheel turn. And there was a time uh, when we were told that um, we had to be very gentle with the wound for that emerging granulation tissue. And um, that we you know, needed to be very careful with the, the solutions that we put in. But Randy Walcott talks about the, the wound that's locally infected as a hostile environment. And so we've moved, the wheel has turned again so where we now understand that if we're not cleansing, we could be impacting negatively on that wound healing. If we allow those microbes, if we allow the crusting at the wound edges. So we understand that we are facilitating healing, whereas before we thought we were hurting with cleansing. And in some cultures, cleansing is um, not advocated. And so trying to teach the patients and, and be cultural sensitive to um, what they require, trying to give them the evidence and understanding that we need to cleanse out the, the non-desirable so that the wound can have its full potential. So yes, we have, the wheel has turned. Um, and I think we're all in agreement now that wound cleansing needs to occur with each dressing change. How you do that varies and with what solution varies, but it needs to be done at some level. Now this just this document just came out over the weekend, um, and it's on the use of antiseptics in practice. And what I love about this is the terminology because we have the rinsing, we have the soaking terms I've already used. Moisturizing is important for that skin health. Active removal of fluid, fluid balance is so important. And some of the dressings we use actually rinse the wound, have that cleansing effect as well. Um, so that's good to see here. Irrigation, I, I've talked about as well. Now, debridement, a lot of people get confused with the debridement and wound cleansing. So mechanical cleansing and mechanical debridement are many times the same thing. And people say, oh, I, 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 can't, I can't debride, but I can mechanically cleanse. But they're essentially the same um, when we're talking mechanical cleansing. So it's good to see here. Um, I would have maybe put a slightly different terminology, but it does have achieved the same goal. And so when we're talking about wound cleansing, we're talking about all of this. So it was a good diagram. I was, I was happy to see it. They also provide and, an, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. The, the next slide is about an algorithm um, that they provide from this document as well. I mean, I'm Terry, I'm really interested in this slide because actually you could apply a lot of this to negative pressure wound therapy as well, couldn't you, in terms of um, the elements that would be involved in, in that sort of treatment. Uh, with insulation as well. That's right. Um, you have the same premise, the, the rinsing, the soaking. Um, and if you're using some of the, the newer foams, it has that the derivative effect as well. Um, the active removal of fluid. So yeah, I never thought about it, but uh, yeah, absolutely. After that, thank you for sharing that with our audience. It's really helpful. 
So this is here's an algorithm. And so for um, those of you wanting more uh, instructions about when and how, they provide you with this uh, no wounds um, or they have a wound but no infection or risk factors. And remember, risk factors play an important part. A wound present with in infection risk factors. And then we go into the wound infection continuum and they provide that. Um, and again, it's the same things. It's about debriding and cleansing um, and the dressing choice uh, and reassessment. So it's the same theme, just updating each time um, using the evidence to validate these recommendations again. And it's, it's very um, rewarding as a clinician who's been doing it for a long time to see that some of the consistencies uh, continue to be appropriate. Um, as I said, you know, the window to continues, I mean, the, um, the will continues to turn, um, but our understanding as the evolution of our understanding of biofilm and, and infection in general continues to uh, evolve that um, we're fairly certain of some of the commonalities. So anytime that we're talking about wound infection, we have to manage the moisture balance and that wound exudate is so important. So this is a document um, uh, talking about wound exudate effective assessment and management. A wonderful document to choose. So this is just one table from the document, table seven, talking about the type of exudate the color, the consistency, or the viscosity of that, and then some comments about that. Understanding that viscosity can influence the effectiveness of your dressings, but we need to inspect the old dressing. So we need to, uh, when I'm looking at a saturated dressing, I'm gonna ask the patient, when was this changed? So if it's totally saturated and it was changed this morning or yesterday, you know that's not gonna last three days. So that's gonna mm -hmm. inform me about the frequency. So you have a choice when the skin is macerated or um, it's heavy exudate is you either increase the frequency of the dressing change or you increase the absorbency of the regime. So you have choices, but you have to understand that that moisture needs to be balanced. And that type of fluid is giving you a story that helps with your assessment. So this is a document from the five-step um, guideline. Uh, just again, providing you with um, recommendations. It has pictures, it has QR codes. But what I like again is that it has the, the, the same recommendation. It is referencing the IWI, but it's about uh, assessment, cleansing, debriding, and then appropriate use of dressing. We always have to be mindful of antimicrobial antibiotic stewardship. Um, and even in Australia, our therapeutic guidelines uh, for our national guidelines on prescribing antibiotics talks about for a wound, you still need to do the wound bed preparation. So even that term has gotten into that pharma pharmacological mindset. So this is from the International Working Group Diabetic Foot, and they put out their guidelines every four years. And this is the, the Wi-Fi. So this is one uh, wound infection classification. So it it's, um, talks about tissue, it talks about ischemia and, and infection, and it gives you a scoring for that. So when you're talking about the diabetic foot, um, understanding that it's more than just the infection that can provide the prognosis and the urgency for treatment. And uh, so this, I commend this document to you. And then uh, the next slide shows 
not only the um, the classification of infection um, provides you some of the definitions as well um, using their documentation, but I compared them with the IWI and our classification system, and they marry quite well. So it is quite rewarding to know that internationally, the experts are providing clinicians and patients with guidance about what we see as a mild or local or moderate or spreading or severe and sepsis so that they flow together um, and giving uh, our clinicians consistent information and uh, guideline recommendations. So why do we therapeutically uh, clean wounds? Again, just to reemphasize to you folks, we need to disrupt that biofilm, cleanse the excess exudate from the wound, prepare the wound bed for cultures and, and or the wound dressing, assist in that wound assessment by removing all that debris um, and then decreasing that bile burden are essential criteria. So in the IWI, we have adopted the step-down, step-up biofilm-based wound care that was first published by Schultz et al. in 2017. The focus of this paradigm is that we need to be less tolerant of non-healing. And so we want you, when the patient comes into your service, to understand what the diagnosis is. And if you don't know the diagnosis, then you need to refer off or get somebody who can provide that diagnosis. We want aggressive debridement and empirical treatment um, and standard of care for that patient. So within that first week, you should see some change, whether it's improved the quality of living for the patient, such as decreased exudate, uh, decreased odor. Um, wound healing may, won't be occurring necessarily in that first week, but you should have a healing trajectory within that first month. And we now have uh, healing timelines or expected healing timelines. And then if you're not get, that patient's not on a healing trajectory within four to six weeks, then that patient needs to be reassessed. But if they are, now are on the healing trajectory, the, the decision to step them down to standard care or step them up uh, within that for once a wound is prepared for more advanced modalities, whether it's skin grafts or negative pressure, um, cellular-based uh, tissue products, um, oxygen-based um, products uh, to help facilitate that final healing or healing, in fact. So this provides you with uh, good guidance and the importance of early intervention. And Terry, can I ask you, where on this sort of continuum are you identifying your stalled wounds and what is the best kind of step within within this to kind of identify those patients that are going to need a different course of action? So if within if the patient um, is not healing, so you've you've um, they've come into your your facility and you've identified, you've provided the etiology, you've targeted therapy based on that, you're doing aggressive debridement, you're using proactive topical agents, and if they're still not moving, um, then you have to reassess but um, for them and find out why with the etiology um, that you've thought, do I need a differential diagnosis? Uh, and maybe you need to refer them off to vascular or refer off to a more specialized clinic so they can do further diagnostics. Um, if that wound is just not moving um, and you've done all the, the, the good care, then we need to find out the reason why. Sometimes our advanced therapies help tip them over 
So we've prepared the wound, we've cleaned it up, and the um, growth factors are now that we prepare the wound can be receptive because if you just put growth factors, we found this out in, in the early 2000s, if you just put growth factors into a hostile environment, they'll be ineffective. But now that you prepare the wound, they're now receptive. Our protease inhibitors so will also change that microenvironment. The negative pressure will change that microenvironment. So they facilitate as well as the debridement um, that enhanced healing. And that's that one question. Yeah, absolutely. Because one, one, one challenge we face in plastic surgery is that we're getting these patients referred so late and so far down that line that actually it's really helpful to see this kind of um, kind of pictorial is that we're actually seeing where that referral should be made or we can identify pretty early from that exactly who's responding and then we can try and um, sieve out the people that are not healing as they should be on a normal trajectory and then bring that intervention in early for advanced kind of wound modalities as such our it's, tolerance it's really, really needs needs to decrease and you know i've had patients who come into my clinic and say well you know they're six months down the track and i said why what was a referral delayed the doctor didn't think i was bad enough to see you Wow. Yeah. So they've, yeah, so they've paid for dressings for six months or, and repeated appointments. Um, and if I'm not getting healing, then I refer off, you know, I'm not the end point. I'm a facilitator of advanced care, but if, if I can't get the patient to heal and you can't heal a wound individually, you need a team. Um, and so whether the dietitian, the podiatry, vascular, all are key components to good wound management. And that's what this paradigm talks about. And it's really helpful to think that actually perhaps we should be moving more towards a multidisciplinary wound care clinic where all those professionals that you've mentioned are actually there in one clinic to be able to identify these patients that have kind of fallen through the net sometimes. Oh, that's ideal. And when I hear my colleagues uh, presenting on their, their work from actually having all the people in, in the room, um, I'm just envious because we're still... we. We do a lot of shared care, but it's not the formal structure that we see in some of these high-risk foot clinics or these multi-D um, treatment centers. Um, yeah, yeah, the optimal. <laughs> yeah. So this comes from the wound hygiene consensus document. So this is just to help um, some of the, the people watching the webinar to understand that um, you can help guide your patients if they're doing self-care or the carers themselves as to what they can do within their scope and and uh or if uh, i can't i don't do all the dressing changes so i have a catchment area of 250 kilometers different services uh, implementing the regime that i've prescribed and some of them may have training some may not have training so again providing guidance on what they're quite capable to do within their realms and then obviously the expert or certified clinicians where we're doing the diagnosis and prescribing the regime. Um, so the, the wound hygiene document provides you with those guidance based on skill level, how to implement wound hygiene. So it's very, very practical document. The next slide talks about um, with the um, performing the wound hygiene tasks uh, based on the um, tissue uh, and the healing. So obviously with necrotic tissue, uh, we need vigorous and physical force for that. And with necrotic tissue, many times, um, if mechanical is all you can do, but the, the quickest way to do it is, is sharp, conservative sharp or sharp. 
Um, and uh, so it talks about that with the sloughy wounds where you have that surface substance. Again, it's still rigorous. Uh, the, uh, and then it gives you the uh, options for that. And then uh, unhealthy granulation is still intensive. But as you get more towards a healing trajectory, you can become more gentle and you, you don't have to use the sharp or it just becomes more mechanical. And then as it's epithelializing, just uh, gentle uh, cleansing. Stephen Percival, who's a leader in biofilm, um, just showing you different um, experts and, and their take on, uh, but he talks about biofilm suppression, but it's still the same concept, concepts of disruption, removal, reducing, preventing, and killing. And he provides you with examples of, of how to do that. But understanding that, that sharp debridement alone will not provide you with that. You still need the cleansing of that because sharp debridement, uh, depending on, on the depth at which you go, that we know that the um, uh, biofilm will, will go below the surface as well. Um, but it's that repeated the debridement that provides you with that disruption and reduction um, for biofilm suppression. Now we use the term antimicrobial a lot. So I like to include this when I'm talking about it. So it's uh, antimicrobial is an umbrella term. Within that, we have antibiotic, antiseptic, and disinfectant. So antibiotics are selective agents uh, against replicating bacteria. And with um, biofilm in the mature, you have that decreased meiotic activity. That's why they're not as effective. Uh, the antiseptics are chemical agents that are applied topically to the skin or the wound. And the newer generations just have that low cytotoxicity uh, and selectivity and they're designed to kill uh, or inhibit the multiplication of microorganisms. Disinfectants, we don't use on wounds because they're not suitable, because, uh, they're toxic, but we do use them uh, for cleansing our surfaces prior to putting our equipment on them. So our trolleys, our flat surfaces in the home, we need to decontaminate using disinfectants. So, we talked about the four steps about cleansing the wound and peri-wound, debridement, refashioning the wound edge, making sure that crust is removed from the wound edges or debriding the callus, the hyperkeratosis. And then the fourth step is the dressings. And so there are multiple types. We have medicated, whether it be honey, silver, antiseptic, or iodine. We have the non-medicated and they work through action and whether it be microbial binding, sequestering means that it goes into dressing and is held osmotic or hypertonic, which has a sort of rinsing activity. If it's a dry wound, you have moisture donating, or if it's wet, you have absorbing. Passive, they don't do much. They're, um, they're just dry, whether it's gauze or non-adherent. The US still use these quite a bit. Negative pressure wound therapy. Um, and we've had negative pressure since the 1990s, but we, now we have a plethora of types. So we have dressings with canisters, without canisters, we have disposable, we have installation, and we have incision management. So negative pressure therapy has certainly grown. And then we have cellular tissue-based products, whether they be matrix or scaffolding um, or growth factors, indeed, once you prepare the wound. So the uh, our 2002 document, again, talking about uh, dressings and antiseptics, we tried to provide the reader with the level of evidence. We did this through a grade process, so we provide you with high certainty, modern certainty, or low certainty. And so we provide you with sort of those guidance, um, giving you the evidence um, and the re uh, references also 
Uh, so if you want to deeper dive into that, um, so that when you're going to your managers, you can say we have some level evidence. Wound management doesn't have uh, always, uh, you know, the, the top of the pyramid, um, but providing the clinician with some guidance about the evidence for their particular product. Now, this is a document from Wounds Australia. So this is Australia um, uh, generated. And it's um, applications of aseptic technique on a wound dressing procedure. And it can be di uh, downloaded. I think it does cost to purchase um, a hard copy. But this document uh, I commend to you uh, because it talks about how to sequence a wound dressing procedure. It also talks about uh, open but unused product storage of products within the home. So it's a good practical document, uh, not only for you, but for um, uh, the clinicians, but the patients themselves. So I'll go through a little bit with you now. So some of the wound cleansing considerations, as Georgina has referenced, is the patient health uh, related factors, the wound characteristics, the availability of products and equipment, the complexity of the wound dressing procedure itself, the environment where the wound dressing procedure, I've given you two examples. You can see that uh, the first home and some of our community nurses go into homes that look like this versus the, the controlled hospital setting. And you must always abide by your local policies or procedures. So these are the considerations when you're talking about wound cleansing. The document provides um, about the different environments and what um, based on a risk assessment tool and it provides that risk assessment tool in there about whether you're in a semi-controlled environment, such as an acute hospital, and whether it's a shared um, shower environment or single environment, and some of those for you, and the general hygiene provided. The next one is um, a GP clinic or outpatient clinics uh, about whether you have the patient uh, cleanse the wound prior to coming in, um, but you need they should bring in the old dressing or take a photo of that so that you have that information about um, the exudate. Again, that sort of a semi-controlled environment, you find these principles within the document. The next one is about um, a residential facility. And again, it's based on the risk of the patient and the options of the shower based whether it's shared or um, individual. So you have to um, review those and decide for your patients. We get a lot of questions about showering um, and uh, in the home environment, um, we want the patient to feel normal and human and having a shower. But sometimes when they have repeated infections, we discourage them from taking the, down the dressing and going into the shower. What we tend to ask them to do is leave it covered, have the shower. Um, it doesn't matter if it gets wet um, and then change it when um, you get out um, and then wash the leg um, in a more controlled environment. It depends on also the potable water. Um, you know, I work in the country, so some patients um, have tank water. You know, when I first moved to Australia, we had possums in our tank water, so it's not always best. So it's those risk factors. In the home situation, again, this is an example from an article I read from the UK, and the picture just struck me, and I use this, is this what should we be doing? The, the dressing tray is on the carpet. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's good practice. We recommend that it be on a flat surface. We see that it's either a heater or a, a fan of some sort. Is that turned off or is that blowing into the wound environment? There are unsterile items on the sterile field. That's fine. We can put do that as long as we know that's contaminated. 
is poor safety posture for this patient, um, maybe getting a stool to, to sit more properly or elevate the patient's leg. And the socks are still on, so how much cleaning really was done? So I, I, I use this picture for a, very, a variety of reasons, but I, I think this is a good example of not to do. So uh, we have a choice of aseptic technique when we're doing a wound dressing procedure. Um, so the first photo is showing you um, that you could just use your small sterile environment or you can use a um, uh, dressing field. And within that, you can have a simple dressing procedure or a complex dressing procedure. And Terry, how hard do you find with the challenge of, of you treating wounds in different environments and different types of patients? Uh, how do you find it in terms of standardizing what you do for that patient? Well, um, there are recommendations about the, the simple and complex and, and what, what that means. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, it's based on what Georgina talked about. It's the, the host, so the person, the patient, what, what their risk factors are. So if they're severely immunocompromised, um, you want to take greater precautions uh, versus just um, removing sutures. Um, if the home environment or the environment is uncontrolled, then you may want to have a greater uh, precautions with that as well. So there are different risks to a controlled and non-controlled environment. And then how you choose that. And that's also equipment available uh, around the world. Not everybody has access to um, these stainless steel trolleys. Uh, not everybody has access to complex dressing trays. So that's when you're talking about aseptic technique, we're talking about microfields, keeping the instruments clean. Um, and then if you, um, how to, you once they're contaminated, what you do with them. Um, so it's the, the matrix is based on the patient and the environment and also the skill of the clinician. So yeah, I mean, I they're not, yeah, and I find when I have to do dressings in different kind of, sometimes it's on the wards, sometimes it's in theater, sometimes it's in the dressings clinic. But what I find is if in my mind, I've got a set framework on how I'm going to change that dressing and try and use the same steps and as many of those kind of original equipment that I can in that setting, at least what I'm doing is the same for each patient in the different environment, even though that environment's different and that patient's wound might be different. At least if I'm trying to, keep myself standardized that's one part of the equation where I know that um you know that, that's absolutely correct and and people are my patients often often comment about how many gloves I use so to do a wound dressing procedure you need at least three changes of gloves yeah. that being that to remove that dressing um that you've uh, so you remove the dressing you dispose of of the old dressing after you've assessed it and the gloves, and you do your hand hygiene. Then to cleanse a wound, you put on a new pair of gloves, um, whether it be non-sterile, sterile, depending on what you're, you're doing, um, and cleanse a wound, and then you dispose of those gloves, and then you're uh, for reapplication of a dressing, you have a clean or sterile gloves to do that as well. So there, there's some consistencies, regardless of um, location or environment, um, it depends on if it's sterile, non-sterile, or if you have a whole setup and you can do that. But there are ways, consistencies, as you stated, um, standardized to prevent, it's that sequencing to prevent um, cross-contamination or contamination itself. Same principles. 
Thank you very much, Terry. Let's have a little look at, at a way we can do the wound cleansing. Let's go over to that uh, next video. So for this part of the demonstration, we're going to show how to irrigate a cavity using the Prontosan wound solution. Now this is an example of a stage 4 pressure injury with cavities and tunnelling. So we use the Prontosan wound solution as the, in the bottle because it delivers around about 7 pounds per square inch or 7 psi. And that's the adequate level of pressure that's needed to irrigate the cavity and remove any devitalised tissue or retain dressing products. Now to open the Prontosan solution, we turn the cap in a clockwise position take off the ring and then you put the cap back on and screw it up until you meet resistance. There's a spike in the end of the cap that penetrates the bottle to open it up. Now we're going to show you how to use or open the packet of the uh, Prontosan debridement pad. Now the Prontosan debridement pad is simply opened and pull the backing off. And then we use our bottle of Prontosan solution in the container. And then that's ready for use. Now we'll demonstrate how to use those products on the simulation. Now in this part of the simulation we're going to be looking at how we actually irrigate the wound and use the debridement pad in clinical practice. Now you've got to remember that this is a simulated scenario so we would always make sure in the real life clinical situation that we'd observe the principles of um, the aseptic non-touch technique. So making sure that we're washing our hands, donning appropriate protective, personal protective equipment and clothing and um, maintaining an appropriate level of asepsis for the environment in which you're working. But because this is a simulated scenario you will notice that there's variance in what we wouldn't ordinarily do in clinical practice. So now I'm going to put on my gloves um, as a simulation and, uh, and then we'll start irrigating the, the wound cavity using the Prontosan solution. Okay, so first of all, what I would do is use the Prontosan wound solution to irrigate the cavity. Now you could also use the Prontosan solution to loosen the dressing product before removal as well, so it would help with atraumatic removal of the dressing, but assuming that we've already removed the dressing and the wound is exposed. So all you do is tip the, wound, the bottle of Prontosan solution up, and a tip for clinical practices, if you can warm the solution before use, it would also help to reduce that wound associated pain for the, the person. Um, so you can do that using a bottle warmer, or you can have it in a, a, a jug of warm water, for example. So assuming that we've already done that, now we just tip the bottle up and then just gentle pressure, irrigating the wound, and remembering that that's providing around about seven pounds per square inch of pressure. This is where I would typically then loosely pack the wound with some gauze, so put gauze in and then we would irrigate um, the gauze with the solution and then I'd leave it sit there, so loosely pack the entire cavity with the gauze and then leave it sit there for you know, anywhere from 5 to 10 minutes depending upon what are your goals of treatment are. In this situation if we still had this amount of devitalised tissue I'd be leaving it sit there for probably about that 10 minutes. then we want to use our debridement pad. So you can see that the debridement pad has, an, has a tear-shaped design. The idea is that with the narrower end you can use that to get into underneath any tunnelling or, or cavities and then the wider area can be used for flatter surface areas. All right. 
So for this, for this simulation, we'd use a narrower end and we're going to literally, in a, using gentle circular motions, we're going to clean the entire surface of the, of the wound, helping to lift off and remove the devitalised tissue. And the tiny little microfiber, microfibers in the debridement pad is what really helps to lift off that devitalised tissue. And it's relatively atraumatic, so it doesn't hurt the patient and you'll find that it comes away nice and easily. So covering the entire surface until we've got uh, pinprick bleeding. And what they say with the pinprick bleeding is that um, it's helping to, you've, you've got back to a, a vascular wound bed essentially. So um, because this is a, a, a demonstration, you can see that we've got quite a lot of fluid in the surface of the, the, um, the wound moulage. In a normal clinical environment, a lot of this moisture that you would see would be wicked away quite easily. Um, so using those gentle circular motions, helping to clean the wound. And, and what would usually happen in, in clinical practice is that you see that the entire surface of the debridement pad is picking up the debris that's in the, in the wound. So circular motions across the entire surface of the wound. And again, in normal clinical practice where this black necrotic tissue is located, you'd usually be able to lift that off with no, uh, no difficulty and with no trauma to the, the patient. And you'll also notice when I'm using the debridement pad that we're using the edge of it. And this is where we're refashioning and shaping the edges of the wound. So it's moving, removing any devitalised tissue or crust that develops on the edge of the wound to stimulate new tissue growth. Now that we've shown how to clean the wound using the Prontosan wound solution and how to use the debridement pad to, to clean the wound and refashion and reshape the wound edges, it's come to applying the wound dressing. So in this situation, we've got a cavity wound, so we need to think about things like the volume of exudate. So we'd use things like barrier preparations on the surrounding skin to protect it from any moisture associated wound damage. We'd also use things like our Prontosan Wound Gel X. The reason why we'd select Prontosan Wound Gel X for this wound is because there's exposed bone in the base of the wound. And we want to make sure that we're keeping that tissue nice and moist. Now, again, because this is a simulation and a very deep wound, Pronosan Gel X would work really effectively as an interface. We'd put the Gel X as the primary dressing, and then we might use an interface like a silicon mesh, for example. And in such a deep wound, this is an ideal situation for negative pressure wound therapy. Um, you can also use the Prontosan solution as an installation method for negative pressure wound therapy. So now we'll open our dressing products and show you how we would apply those in clinical practice. So first of all, we open up our barrier preparations. We then want to open up our, our Prontosan wound gel. Now to open the gel, we unscrew the lid and then we want to uh, remove the security opening and then that's ready for use. And then of course our secondary dressing. In this example here, we're using the, uh, the Eskina Dress Hill foam. All right, so firstly, we want to protect that surrounding skin. And obviously, again, remembering your principles of infection control. This is a simulation. So going right up to the wound edges and on the peri-wound skin, anywhere that an adhesive is applied. The next component is to apply our Prontosan Wound Gel X to the wound. Now the Prontosan Wound Gel X provides both the betaine or surfactant cleanser and also the polyhexanide which is our antimicrobial. Now the trick to using the Prontosan Wound Gel X is to make sure that you apply it around about 3 to 5 millimetres in thickness so that you get a generous application over the surface of the wound. 
Now in this deep cavity wound, we'd be aiming to cover the area of exposed bone and, uh, and, and tendon in the wound. So again, just squirting that into the wound, again, that three to five millimetres in thickness. Now for a superficial or a larger surface area or a flatter wound, again you want to apply it in that thickness of about three to five or seven millimetres in thickness, it depends on the type of tissue in the wound. So for example here we would do that as well. In this situation we'd use an interface dressing because you've got a cavity, you want to make sure that you're promoting granulation tissue formation from the base of the wound and that's best achieved by filling the dead space. So you could use things like your negative pressure wound therapy which is ideal for the use in a stage 3 and 4 pressure injury. So then we're going to apply our secondary dressing. So in this instance, it's our Askina sacral foam dressing. Removing the backing. And then applying that to the surface of the wound. Now ideally, your dressing needs to be at least two centimetres larger than the wound area itself to improve exudate management. Okay, so that's really the technique that we use for application of wound dressings using the Pronosan Wound Gel X as our primary dressing. And again, just remembering that it does vary and the decisions that you make in your clinical practice really are dependent upon wound characteristics. So for low to moderate levels of exudate, um, the hydration of the wound and absorption of any exudate is important. And then moderate to heavy uh, exudate, again, really looking to improve your exudate management, so the use of super absorbent dressings um, to prevent any breakdown of the peri-wound skin. But the important things to remember in that we've covered is how we go about the principles of cleaning the wound using the Prontosan solution and then refashioning and reshaping the edges of the wound using the debridement pad and then using anti-biofilm reformation strategies by using the Prontosan Wound Gel X. It's that combination approach that really does help to um, break that biofilm cycle and, and promote wound healing for a patient with a, a, a challenging or, or hard to heal wound. So I hope you found this demonstration useful and that you picked up some useful hints and tips that you can use in your clinical practice using the Prontosan range of dressing products to achieve the principles of wound hygiene. So your choice, you have a choice of aseptic technique um, and it's remembering um, on the next slide, I'll show you that it's, it's about what, what type of uh, technique you're using, whether you're using a simple or standard uh, wound dressing uh, aseptic technique or complex or surgical aseptic. And that's based on your aseptic technique is based on your sequencing, your environmental control, your hand hygiene, that maintenance of the aseptic field, the equipment requirements, and the PPE. In Australia, we tend to go through um, the simple as being 20 minutes. It's a simple procedure. And you can do that microenvironment either through a dressing tray or just putting your instruments and keeping them clean on a small sterile field, where a surgical is more complex with sterile uh, dress uh, gloves. So this is just showing you that this is a uh, small, uh, simple dressing tray. And again, uh, there's recommendations from uh, the aseptic technique uh, document that I talked about. It's just making sure those microenvironments uh, and no touch are used. This 
surgical uh, aseptic technique, you would think that internationally we would have some consensus about uh, when that's required. But when I was in the U.S., um, they don't necessarily have to have a surgical aseptic technique for doing their negative pressure wound therapies. Uh, and so um, I think internationally we need to come to um, a more consistent, consistent approach when we're teaching about that. The application of aseptic technique, um, this is from that same Wounds Australia document about how to sequence when you're washing a limb and peri wound using a container so that you're not cross-contaminated. We don't soak anymore. That encourages pseudomonas. So uh, again, recommend this for you in your different environments and how to keep your equipment in good condition. And that's again, just showing the document. So now I'm going to talk about um, value-based care uh, or the true cost of wound care. So we spend billions and our job as clinicians is to be very mindful of our, the cost for uh, the patient and our budgets. And if we do proactive wound management and we get the patient on a healing trajectory, that is good value. So just to review with you, what value-based care is. So many times it, we're, we're looking at comparison products and, and I've been in wound management since the nineties and I've had to go to managers, you know, the unit cost of this is A and the unit cost of this, of product B is this and product B may be more expensive, but I'm getting outcomes. I'm, I'm, it's doing the job that I want it to do. So it's not just the cost of the product that we're looking at. We're looking at um, outcomes for that. And that provides you with an overall price of uh, therapy. So when you're going to your managers and you're advocating, don't just talk about the unit cost. Talk about the value based on wound uh, care uh, about the outcomes. And I guess also talking about duration of treatments as well. So if you have one method of, of cleansing that wound or preparing that wound bed, um, if that's getting you to the point of healing much quicker than a different method or a different technique, then actually overall in the long run, even though it may be more expensive to use that product initially, if that's getting you to that point where you're, he you're healing or healed, then obviously that's economically a, a good decision. Absolutely. And that's what they call um, uh, cost effectiveness. Um, so uh, that, yes, the unit cost may be this, but if you're decreasing frequency changes um, and you're actually getting that patient on a healing trajectory. And I actually had a manager tell me once that um, I had an inefficient system. Um, and I said, why is that? And he said, you spend too much time with your patients. And I said, okay. So um, you send your patients to me after, you know, six months um, because they're not healing. I diagnose them and I either say they're healable or non-healable. And if they're healable, get them on a healing trajectory. Um, and, you know, I've got the inefficient service. You keep them on your books for this long. Um, so it's really looking at what the, the priorities are. Um, and we may use more expensive products, but like you said, if we can get the outcomes we want. And it's also what I've talked about before, decreasing that intolerance to non-healing, finding out why. So we really, that, that four to six weeks 
should be guiding us. If we're not getting some improvement, then why, why continue to maintain them if they're healable? We need to then use the more advanced products, be more proactive in our care or refer off or do all the above in order to get that patient if they're healable healed. So when we're talking about wound hygiene and health economics, if we remove the biofilm and decrease it using the recommended um, antiseptics and treatment programs. As stated, we reduce our antibiotic, antimicrobial usage. We reduce our length of treatment that you've talked about. And that gives us more wound-free days. And therefore that reduces our over, overall price of therapy. And when we're doing our business case studies and when we're doing our uh, product evaluation, we're having to look at all of this uh, when we're doing our trials showing that it does provide good health economics and wound bed preparation does provide that. So this was uh, an article that uh, was an editorial really by Keith Hardy and Douglas Coyne last month in International Wound Journal. And what's the true cost of wounds faced by different healthcare systems around the world. And uh, Julian Guest weighed in on the, on the discussion as well in, in uh, talking about why there's variations in different com uh, countries. But the, what I'm trying to with this slide is show that it's billions, billions. So we need to get smarter at how we do it because as our population ages, this is going to increase again. Um, and the expenditure um, it, for healthcare is always limited. So we need to do the basics better um, so we can stop wastage and, and improve the efficacy of our service but also the care we provide. And then you've heard me talk about healable, non-healable. So uh, Gary Sibold et al. Um, in this document in 2021 talked about, and we use we need to know whether it's healable or non-healable. It helps target our, our goal of therapy, um, whether it's maintenance, and they provide definitions for this. But Healing is where you have a trending uh, positive indicator, such as decreased size, pain, or exudate. It's not always the size, it's the quality of living issues as well. So this should be ongoing monitor monitoring of what you're doing, and it you need to provide what your goals of therapy are. And if it's non-healable, then it changes. We're going to go uh, to where uh, maybe not being as proactive. And maintenance, maybe because there's no intervention that can be provided or the patient cannot or will not uh, adhere to the plan of care. Or in some countries, there's just not the resources available. So I'd like to conclude talking about wound bed preparation is for what you can and what you can't see. So this is augmented assessment using a, a fluorescent device. And what that does, it helps improve our cleansing. And so Price showed that by improving the cleansing and the derivative too, they show decreased microbial density. In one year, they were able to decrease their antibiotic prescriptions by 33%, able to decrease the prescriptions of antimicrobial dressings by 49%, and increase wound healing rates by 23% at the 12-week mark, but also decrease um, amputations by 2%. So that's pretty significant, showing that with good wound bed preparation, you can achieve all that in one year. That's good economics and that's good outcomes. So in summary, every wound dressing procedure matters. What you do or you don't do may affect the outcome of wound healing in the short term or the long term.
We also need to, uh, with each dressing procedure, do the assessment and diagnosis because they are key to providing appropriate and targeted therapy. We need that diagnosis. We need to invest healing, invest in healing by investing the time to do it right. So we need to provide the aseptic technique or subscribe to the local wound infection prevention uh, protocols. We need that thorough assessment, not only of the wound, but the peri wound. We need to provide therapeutic wound and peri-wound cleansing, debridement, refashioning, um, and cleansing again, appropriate wound dressing selection based on the wound goals and the patient preferences. And then we need to monitor that progress and make appropriate referrals when required. That is in a nutshell of what we need to be doing.